Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! Welcome to the Forbidden Technique Podcast on the Fight Side Podcast Network with me, your host, Silas Martin, and my co-host as always, Christian Reynolds. Today we're going to be discussing this weekend's UFC pay-per-view event, UFC 272, headlined by Colby Covington versus Jorge Masvidal. Um, Not a fight for a title and not a fight that is of the kind of significance that a lot of people think that it should be headlining a pay-per-view, but it's probably going to do better numbers than something like Alexander Volkanovsky versus the Korean Zombie. So it is what it is. It's a compelling fight, particularly if you you know buy into the whole narrative of the friends and training partners turn sworn enemies thing. Um, I don't really care about all that, and I'm going to try and just make as objective an assessment of, as possible of this fight because there's really no way that we can know how that affects the matchup. But um, this is a hard kind of matchup for me, because it's one where I look at both guys, and I look at all the stuff that they're good at and their actual skills, and it seems really obvious to me that one guy should win, and I have to remind myself that sometimes that's not how MMA works. And I'm not even necessarily talking about in terms of like, athletic disparities or anything because Jorge Masvidal himself is a pretty athletic guy. Um, it's just the fact that um, I think Jorge Masvidal is a lot better at MMA than Colby Covington, but he might lose anyway. Jorge Masvidal, I've likened him to Bobby Green multiple times recently in the way that he's just so well-rounded and such a consummate technician, but lacks strategic de- directionality that's able to seal him a lot of fights. Jorge Mazadal in particular has had the classic issue of getting dropped in the first round, winning the second round, and then coasting in the third round. (laughs) And dropping a split decision because he thinks he should be winning decisions just because he's like the most skilled, cool guy in the room. But he is incredibly skilled. He can do everything, but to the point that he could compete but not win in the kickboxing match he insisted on having with Stephen Thompson and the grappling match that he insisted on having with Demi and Meyer. So the classic question is just, is Jorge going to have the urgency? Is he going to know what he needs to do? And is he going to get to it early? You'd really like to think with everything that's on the line in this fight and him having been brutally knocked out for the first time on that kind of stage in his last fight that... He's going to have something to prove in this fight, but you just never know with Jorge Masvidal. And then Colby Covington, um, you know, if we're being completely honest, is a fighter who I just don't think is very good. I think there's this aura that is built up amongst the casual fan base and even a lot of MMA fighters that Colby Covington is something that he is not. And I think the strength of his wins, if you actually take a bit of a closer look at his resume, kind of attest to that, because... Let's be honest, his best wins are old Damian Meyer, who was boxing him up until he got tired, and Brian Barberena. You know, that's assuming that you don't give him the Rafael dos Anjos fight, because if, if you do, you're wrong. So, Christian, can you give me an honest assessment of Colby Covington's skill set of an M- as an MMA fighter? I think he is good at getting takedowns, but his 
he really just doesn't even have a willingness to stay on top. He just gets top position and lets you keep getting back up over and over and kind of wears you down by not necessarily even like cardio bullying, just by being an asshole and being really annoying to fight. He's durable. I will say that um, the aggressive wrestler with an insane gas tank and a good chin who tries really hard is always going to be a problem. You know, he's the Marab Dvalishvili of this division. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, and he's made like some strides in the striking, it seemed, leading up to his last fight. But it was like it was against Usman, who isn't the most refined striker either. So seeing those improvements, of course, if he's going to have a matchup that shows his striking has improved at all, it's going to be that type of matchup where he just needed to get incrementally better. And he got shit kicked in that fight. Yeah, and he got his ass whooped in the first two rounds. And only really got to get shit going whenever, you know, Usman started to falter mentally, it seems. And I, I think that Colby Covington is a solid, like, B-minus fighter. But that's, like, not supposed to be what people are praising all the time, I don't think. Like, he's... How much better is he than, like, Clay Guida? If at all. He's, he's just younger. And at a, a worse weight class. And his striking game is... It's... It's just really rote in the worst ways. He throws very poor mechanics straights and kicks that you can't even tell what type of kick he's throwing a lot of the time. He'll, he'll like flick his hip up in a strange way and like bend his shin wrong the wrong way to like kick at a, a bad angle, or like an off angle. It's very strange. I can't even really describe the way he kicks because it's, it's kind of formless and it changes based on his stance and wherever he's trying to, whether or not he's trying to move forward or backwards. He's hard to describe because there's not that much that's good about it consistently. It's more that it's just always consistent. He, he's doing stuff constantly. Yeah, so something that's interesting is that you brought up um, his recent improvements as a striker, seemingly since um, making the move to MMA Masters, where I think Colby Covington may be getting more technical capital T, in the way that's probably not going to service his game. Because in the second Usman fight, and kind of in the Tyron Woodley fight as well, it seemed like he was focusing slightly more on having correct mechanics and entering range more defensively responsibly, but also just doing a lot less. And he still wasn't particularly good at the things that he was doing. So it's like, if you're not just doing everything all the time, then what is your striking game? Um, so that's like, honestly, should be a concern for Colby Covington moving forward. He should be the guy who throws 700 weird formless strikes. Um, but like, I think he's, I still think he's going to lose to Jorge Masvidal. Right? Yeah, I think, I think that Colby would need to get so much better mechanically to be able to actually contest with Masvidal on the feet for any lengthy period of time that it's kind of pointless for him to even try and use his new improvements. I think he should just wrestle. If he like, we're just trying to think of how Colby should win. It would just be spamming wrestling and then Hori getting tired because he's kind of old. Then again, Hori might submit him. Yeah. Cause like Jorge's, he, he can be taken down, but he's a really deep grappler. He's really dangerous in the clinch. He has submissions he can hit from a variety of positions, and Colby Covington just like, I likened him to Marab because he kind of doesn't have a ground game. His ground game is just doing takedowns over and over again and then just landing in whatever position the takedown puts him in. 
just letting the guy get back up and doing it again, just be an asshole. So like that could work against Jorge Masvidal, like maybe, but he but he's gonna be getting fucked up in the clinch. He's gonna be eating so much shit on entry, and there's like a solid chance if it gets down that Jorge just like guillotines him. You know, Wally Alves did it. So yeah, Jorge Masvidal third round knockout. He's not even the most consistent finishing artist. By what I said at the beginning, to kind of give context for like my whole approach to this fight, Jorge Masvidal is just better at fighting than Colby Covington. So he's going to win. I agree. I think he is a much more skilled fighter that fights worse than Colby Covington. So it's someone who fights to like the best of their strengths, but kind of isn't that good versus a guy that has incredibly like an incredibly deep skill set, but he just fights like an idiot sometimes or doesn't do enough. But I'm going to pick him to knock out Colby in the first round because I am biased against Colby and don't like him. I mean, everyone is. But, yeah. But I'll still pick him to win matchups that I think are favorable for him. I just think this one is only favorable for him if Jorge Masvidal fights like a fucking idiot. But it's not entirely out of the question. And Masvidal's had urgency recently. He has. The, the Usman fights are more concerning for that. But, you know, he was fighting Usman, not Colby Covington. And so moving on to the co-main event, another super late notice replacement. Slightly disappointing because I was genuinely very intrigued to talk about Rafael Dos Anjos versus Rafael Fazeev. Um, But Fazeev's had to pull out last minute and filling in is Hanato Moicano. And... um. As you said yesterday, Christian, it really is really convenient for people like us, uh, the nature of this era of combat sports and how many late notice replacements that we get. Because um, last week we had already done tape for Bobby Green and now we've already watched Tanato Moicano. He fought about two weeks ago, beat Alex Hernandez in the second round by rear naked choke in a fight where he... I had to take a couple of shots to to get it done, but got away pretty unscathed. And he's fighting uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, one of the all-time great lightweights, a f- former champion who moved up to welterweight and had a very solid run, <coughs> which pretty much ended at his split decision loss to Colby Covington in an interim title fight, which a lot of people don't think Colby Covington deserved to take the decision in. But... He's definitely in his autumn years, and the book is a little bit written on how to beat him. And he managed to snatch a top 10 ranking by going down to lightweight and was supposed to fight Islam Makachev. But after Makachev pulled out, uh, Paul Felder ended up filling in on about five days' notice, who wasn't in camp and was pretty much retired and did retire subsequently after the fight. And RDA just just kind of wrestled him for five rounds. But before that, had dropped a concerning decision to Michael Chiesa and has just always struggled with big, physical, aggressive wrestlers who can push him back. And that's not necessarily Hinato Moicano, but it does seem like a very tricky matchup for RDA. Kalf, what do you think about RDA's career and his style and where he's at now? I think that his main regression is, is that he just doesn't throw as much as he used to. Like anytime I watch prime RDA fights, I'm, I'm, I always notice that he throws a lot, and he still throws like a good amount, but it's not RDA's typical volume, and he's 
he hasn't been able to pressure people back since he started fighting even larger fighters. Like, you know, he can pressure back Neil Magny because Neil Magny's like blow him away. No problem if you or any physical force. Also, he he switched into one low kick and then Neil Magny was on the ground and then he won really easily. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, anyone he can just bully, basically, he can pressure. But anyone he can't bully, he he doesn't pressure very well anymore. Which I thought it was impressive to be able to do that to Robbie Lawley, even at that point in his career. It might have been the last impressive time and uh, Robbie Lawley lost. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, RDA, he's kind of the classic king's archetype. It's just you pay your game down to a few simple meat and potatoes things that work for you. It's all southpaw pressure, body kicking, left straights into big hooks and uppercuts, takedowns along the cage, and a really, really solid um, positional jiu-jitsu game where he'll, he'll lock you down in dominant positions where he can get, he can get pitter-patter damage and force you to try and make escapes that can funnel you into a couple of submissions that he's really good at. But then what about Hanato Moicano? Because he's very tricky with his ring craft and a very solid grappler, a former featherweight, which might be a concern for RDA having had such a good run at welterweight and being able to compete physically there. But Moicano does not look like a small lightweight at all. I think he's going to be bigger than Rafael Dos Anjos, actually. Yeah, and Moicano is exceptional at doing anything that has to do with uh, like short combination punching. He, he finds really nice angles when it, with his positioning. They actually land like uppercut into straights or left hooks into straights. Or he has a very nice jab. I kind of think Moicano is going to get his ass whooped. I think he's going to be a lot less physically imposing, even though he's about the same size or taller. Or, or like, he, he might seem like he's going to be larger, but I think RDA is just going to have the strength to just beat the shit out of him. And also the the pace. Moicano is good at pacing himself, but he hasn't really, like, counterpunched consistently against someone as good of, as at pressuring as RDA is. Like, Cater was finding his moments on Moicano a more green Moicano than we have now, but he was still experienced by that point. He's always been hittable if people really try and track him down. Nardier hits the body very well. I, I don't expect Moicano to benefit from it being five rounds at all. I think that really leans towards RDA. What do you think about Moicano in the clinch? I think he's like all right defensively in the clinch, but he, he has like the long boy syndrome where he can sometimes be a little lazy about his like hand positioning. And he doesn't really get too aggressive about hitting people in the clinch unless he has like a market strength advantage. But I don't think he's going to have one, even if he does have any sort of physical advantage over RDA. Because that really is um, another one of RDA's strongest areas is, w- is with his clinch offense. He's, he's really good at finding, uh, finding openings for actual powerful knees and making space to land good in the clinch in a way that a lot of MMA fighters can't. So... I'm slightly concerned about uh, RDA's pace and cardio at this stage of his career because in his prime, he was absolutely the weaponized cardio guy. The pace that he was able to hold, you know, even up to his fight with Colby Covington was pretty insane to be able to put out that much, be able to put up that much output as well as defending wrestling and grappling over five rounds. He just, he looked really quite tentative against like Leon Edwards, 
And I just don't know how much that win over Paul Felder really tells us. Because Paul Felder is obviously a very good fighter. But just the fact that he was pretty much retired, was in camp for a triathlon, which is which is not ideal for a big physical guy who's going to try to grapple you. So this is a really hard one to call. I think I would be way more interested in the matchup uh, and like able to talk about it more if it had like a full camp. But it's such short notice, and Boykana was just training to fight someone that's absolutely nothing like RDA. So I think it's it's a rough one for Moicano. I think it's going to get him a lot of points in the eyes of the fans because you know even if he loses this really badly, it's still going to get him more opportunities in the future. But I don't like it for him. I'm going to pick him because it's a fun pick and there's no stakes. So I'm just going to say Moicano KO round two to be spicy. But I want it to be noted. I think it's a really hard fight for him. But having heard all of the stuff that you just said, I kind of agree. Um, I think just the context of the fight and <clears throat> Moikano clearly being a guy who makes a lot of specific preparations in his camps um, and taking RDA by decision. But I think Moikano is going to have his moments and look okay. And then so moving on, this is just an incredibly puzzling fight to me. Just a weird bit of matchmaking. Edson Barboza versus Bryce Mitchell in the featherweight division. Uh, for some reason, when one of the most historically exciting strikers in in the history of the lightweight division moves down to featherweight, uh, they've just put him against like all of the dedicated grapplers in a division full of strikers. The guy's already fought Danny Gay and Maquin Amakani. And now he's going to fight Bryce Mitchell, who's maybe the best person who's grappling is their game at featherweight, I think. Is that fair to say? I would agree. There's other people that I think are about on par or better, but they, you know, they strike more like Ortega's better jiu-jitsu than Bryce Mitchell, but he can fuck you off with his hands. So. And it's a very different style of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's not a pressure grappler. Ortega's an incredibly dangerous uh, like opportunist with submissions, whereas Bryce Mitchell... Um, he's kind of a lot like Islam Makachev, right? He tries to be. Not not necessarily in terms of specific tactics, but I think like conceptually, just like he has a ton of different entries and it doesn't really matter which one he gets and how clean it is because he can chain them all together. And once he gets you in the ground, he just has like a few positions he wants to put you in that he can cycle through and every attempt you make to escape one of the positions just puts you in another one where he can do stuff and just like it's just like a flow chart but with him he'll do like slightly spicier shit involving like arm triangles and twisters if you want to see just uh, an absolute clinic of that watch him put Charles Rosa in like seven arm triangles and twisters consecutively and not be able to tap Charles Rosa because that's literally impossible Um, but uh, Edson Barboza, in fighting the other more dedicated grapplers in the division who are admittedly just nowhere near as strong takedown artists as Bryce Mitchell, his takedown defense looked really good early. And so so that's a thing to note, that he's that he was really good about just like 
uh, stuffing the shot and like framing off in the clinch and landing offense. And then in the third round of like all of those fights, he'll just get double legged and put on his back up against the cage and he'll just sit there and not really try to, not really appear to try to make any attempt to improve position. Maybe because it keeps happening at the end of third rounds in fights, which he's sure he's already won, which he absolutely should have won that Dan Ige fight. That was insane. But it, it's it's a concern if you're fighting Bryce Mitchell. Um, but then Bryce Mitchell has also got to spend tons of time setting all of that up in striking range, in striking range with Edson Barboza. The, the new featherweight iteration, who is just apparently a fucking nuclear puncher who drops everyone who he fights, uh, including, like, Danny Gay and Shane Burgos. So, um... This could be a real weird one, right? Yeah, I think... It, like, in my head, I want to say that Bryce... Oh, he'll just... He'll just grapple him until Edson's tired, and then he'll eventually either submit him or win a decision. But my heart's telling me that Edson's going to fuck him up with intercepting counters. Not because he has like a huge history of it, but it's just, you know, like Bryce Mitchell's really exaggerated on his entries. He does a lot of things, but like they're all characterized by him just constantly trying to do something more so than being super good at any particular thing. Like he's, he's great on top, but his top game is a lot of just look at how much I'm doing. Like he, he's really aggressive with his head positioning. He gets really tight to your body and just kind of stays on you until he sees any opportunity. Then he dives at it to try and get a better position and then eventually work towards a submission that he likes. And I don't think that's like a great style for beating Edson on the ground because we've seen Edson against really strong top gamers and like they've beaten him, but most of them have a lot different physicality than Bryce has. Like Khabib and Kevin Lee are both strong as shit and like lightweights bordering on welterweight. Compared to Bryce Mitchell, who's a lot smaller, and he focuses more on like going for submissions, and his wrestling is more just in service of getting to the submissions. And because he he, he just has, and, and he needs a way to get to the ground because he's he's so aggressive. So he, he changed things in a ways that he's fought like Edson's fought fighters that do similar things in the way they want to get to the ground, but he hasn't been like, like completely beaten the shit out of by any of them, aside from like Kevin Lee, who's as different of a grappler as can be from Bryce Mitchell. Uh, and Kevin Lee also like was was doing the chicken dance off of a wheel kick in that fight. Late into the fight too. So like Edson gets yeah. worse at defending takedowns later a fight goes, but he doesn't get less dangerous normally. It doesn't seem like. No, I mean, he was losing that fight to Benil Dariush and he just made a read on one of Benny's entries at, and fucking murdered him instantly. And Edson's like definitely regressed at this point. I don't think that's too controversial to say, but he's not shot. Like he's still fine. I don't even know if regressed is fair to say. Like he's getting older and he's adapting to it. I would agree. Like he's finding out who he is at, at, at this new weight class. And he's like, I honestly think his ring craft has just instantly looked better since he left Mark Henry. He's always going to be Edson Barboza at heart. But for all this time that we're looking at him going, oh man, he's so talented. If he could just sort out some of his footwork liabilities. But you know, that's probably never going to change. And then he leaves Mark Henry and it's like, oh yeah, it was, it was Mark Henry all along. Yeah, like his exits are better now. 
Like he he's a lot more consistent about keeping his feet under him whenever he's trying to leave exchanges. Yeah, way more consistent about like taking tight pivots to just retake the center instead of just as soon as he starts getting backed up, just galloping around the entire cage. He'll still do that, but like it's like what three camps he's had at ATT now, and his positioning has just like looked improved almost instantly. So he he's different. He's he's a different guy at this weight class and at this stage of his career, but he's the kind of stupid athlete that, you know, he, he's 36 and he still is insanely fast. He still has pretty reasonable cardio for the way he fights. And also just MMA judges hate Edson Barboza. I'm not sure why. I think a big part of it is he's just, he's not a great finisher and like he moves backwards and does attritional damage a lot. So there's a good chance that he like, gets taken down a bit, but then fucks Bryce up on the feet and then we're in for a weird split decision. Ah, uh, but fuck it. Edson Barboza by knockout. The fucking lovely guy. Yeah, I'm going to say Edson by decision. But I'm going to say Edson's going to win a robbery decision. Going to get going to get spicy. Just making all the spicy picks today. No one's stopping us. No, there's literally no consequences if you're wrong. Why would you not? Exactly. It's fun. People on the internet will call you stupid. Who cares? And then so moving on, we've got Kevin Holland versus Alex Oliveira. And how are we feeling about Kevin Holland right now, Christian? I think he's good. Uh, I'm hoping that his fight against uh, his fight against Dawkins isn't indicative of how his striking is going to be from now on because he seemed a lot more tentative on the feet because he was worrying so much about the wrestling than he normally is, and it kind of is why he got headbutted because he his stance was a lot worse, and he fell over in a weird way and had pretty much headbutted himself. So I don't expect that to be much of a problem in this fight because Alex Oliveira is not the grappler guy. Like it, it, he's probably going to go for some takedowns in the fight, but it's not his way of winning. Probably, and Kev, I think Kevin Holland physically is going to outmatch him, and I'm going to say knock him out in the third. Yeah, I'm just worried about Kevin Holland because for his whole UFC run, it was just like, it doesn't even matter if he's winning because if he's having fun, then you're having fun. And I don't think he was having fun in his last couple fights. I think he got put into a spotlight off being a fan favorite and having some cool wins over lockdown. Had a main event and then immediately another short notice main event where he just got wrestled the shit out of for 10 rounds. And one in a really just in a really just lame, dispiriting way, and yeah, of course, one. Um, it it really was genuinely shocking how much Kevin Holland was like hurting Marvin Vittori every time he touched him. But yeah, like you say, it was like, well, fuck, I got to take this shit seriously now. I got to do wrestling, and then he fights Chris Dorcas and looks. So worried about the wrestling that his striking looks super regressed and he knocks himself out with a headbutt. And and then now he's moving down to welterweight, which is, is again, just like, you know, he hates being disciplined and having to cut weight. It's just like, bro, just, just, just get good and keep fighting in the bad division. You don't have to, you don't have to cut more weight. I think something we also need to consider is that Alex Oliveira is the cheater and Kevin Holland just lost his last fight due to getting headbutted. So how is Alex Oliveira going to approach that? Think he's going to headbutt him? I mean, he might. 
Think he's going to eye poke? I mean, he's going to do all of these things. He's going to kick him in the balls and grab the cage, regardless of whether he's winning or not. He's going to cheat any way he can because he's a filthy cheat. But I basically don't think any of this stuff is really going to be a problem. I mean, Alex Oliveira got club and sub by Randy Brown. Kevin Holland's he's just like, got that similar kind of frame and he's a similar kind of puncher, but probably like way more powerful than Randy Brown. He can just throw long, quick, accurate straights and he's probably going to just knock Alex Oliveira the fuck out in like the first round. Maybe the second. He might he might take it slow and meme about a little bit in the first round, do some silly shit. He might even get taken. It's the other thing. You said Alex Oliveira is probably going to go for a takedown. Um, he might just like get triangled. Yeah, it's very real possibility that Oliveira loses every exchange they have on the ground. Oliveira's been submitted by Gunnar Nelson as well. That was pretty much a club and sub. But he was kind of handling Gunnar in the grappling with a little bit of calculated cheating until he got elbowed really bad and then submitted. So, like, Oliveira's good on the ground, but he's not... Like, like so, so is Kevin Holland. I mean, he also tried to take down Donald Cerrone and just, like, got triangled. Yep. Yeah, he's been submitted a good deal of times to where it's not out of the question for Kevin to just utilize his bottom game that kind of annoyed Derek Brunson to actually just beat Oliveira, who's a lot less nuanced on the ground. And a lot less of a huge, strong muscle man than Derek Brunson is. Yeah, and isn't as powerful. Alex Oliveira is a former lightweight. He's an, he's, he's an okay-sized welterweight, but he's a former lightweight. And... um. He kind of hates wrestling and grappling. And I think Kevin's power is going to be about the same at welterweight, obviously, like a little bit less because he's 15 pounds lighter. Like, I think his power is going to transfer. And he's a guy who relies on his speed. And he's fought at welterweight before and his his hands look good. And so uh, opening the main card for some fucking reason... Sergey Spivak versus Greg Hardy. Uh, Sergey Spivak's going to win. I'm going to say Sergey Spivak by reverse up elbow. I, mean, I think he'll probably just um, probably just going to take Greg Hardy down and either arm triangle or or just ground and pound him like easily. Yeah, I, I should change my pick. Um, I'm going to say Sergey Spivak by winning any way he wants to. Yep. That's it. I'm not talking about Greg Hardy. Jalen Turner versus Jamie Malarkey is probably going to be fun. Uh, probably, I kind of don't have a ton to say about it. Uh, Marina Rodriguez versus Jan and Yan. Again, this is kind of weird matchmaking. Um, Jan and Yan was like right on the cusp of a title shot and then just got beaten into a pulp and finished by Carla Esparza, which was weird. And um, Marina Rodriguez... Probably should be in a number one contenders match. Uh, probably should be getting a notable opponent in a, another main event. A lot of people were talking about her versus Joanna Jacek, but Joanna's not coming back to take that fight. Why would she? So it's one of those uh, number one contender fights, but only for one of the fighters. And uh, Marina Rodriguez is probably just going to knock Shannon Yan out anyway. Yeah, I think Yan has a... a- good deal of like cool tricks she can do with the boxing. She takes all right angles and has nice punching mechanics to it uh, for the most part. There's like some inefficiencies, but it's completely serviceable. But uh, she does leave herself open to get hit by really powerful straight punches. 
and that's Miranda Rodriguez is very good at. Also, the clinch is going to be a really bad place for Yan to hang out at. Yeah, I just I can't unsee Yan uh, loading up on a big, silly spinning back fist and then just getting tagged with a straight right from Claudia Gadelia. And I was just like, oh, yeah, if that was Marina Rodriguez, you just would have died instantly. So, yeah, I think something like that's probably going to happen. I can see her like going for a big wide hooking combo and just getting cleaned out with a, with a straight punch down the middle. Or, as you say, hanging out in the clinch, going for takedowns. And Marina Rodriguez can be taken down, but like Mackenzie Dern couldn't submit her or leverage grappling into any kind of win over five rounds. Um, uh, Carla Esparza like kind of did but the fight was weird and so was the decision and there's no way Carla won it w- w- would have won it over five rounds uh, yeah Marina Rodriguez she's just like really fucking violent in a way that's a problem for a lot of people in this division and Jan and Yan is like she is a good boxer but just like has enough defensive liabilities that she isn't getting punished for by the rest of the people in this division that I I think are going to be an issue for her in this fight. Yeah, she fights like her opponents don't have power. And in this case, her opponent does have power. Yes. Um, Nick Nagamariani versus Kennedy Nchukwu. Uh, Kennedy Nchukwu is going to lose for a bit and then get a knockout probably. Whatever. And then... um, I guess carrying on the theme of American top team gym beef, we've got Marina Moroz versus Maria Agapova. Um, Maria Agapova, one of the most insane glass cannons I've ever seen in the women's divisions, right? Yes. She's so aggressive. with, uh, But from the back foot, she just throws constantly if you're within range of her, which is not super common. Normally people need to get their own fight if they're going to be throwing a lot but she'll throw a lot even if she's getting her ass beat yeah and she's really violent she hits hard she can like her mechanics are kind of fucky but she can put some powerful combinations together and she can mix kicks in there and she's really sneaky about just like wrapping up a quick submission if she has someone badly hurt and then uh, Marina Moroz um, is a lot less of a random finishing threat but she's also just a lot more consistent She's an okay boxer. She's a pretty good clinch fighter, and she's very consistent as a top control player as well. We saw, if if you look at both of their fights with Sabina Mazo, Marina Moreau's just like backed Mazo up pretty easily, got her to the cage, clinched her up. Yeah, worked her from top for three rounds. Whereas Maria Agapova let Sabina Mazo put her on the back foot but just took advantage of the fact that Mazo was like not comfortable exchanging with her and she would just like scoot around along the cage and then occasionally plant her feet and throw a big silly combination and ends up like basically knocking her out in the third round with like a say left straight to the body into a right hook and then rear naked choking her. Um, but like, like barring a random crazy finish, she's probably just going to lose to Marina Morose. She's probably just going to get top-gamed and then maybe get armbarred because just the decision-making that led to Agapova's loss to Shanna Dobson, in which she was an absolutely insane favorite that she shouldn't have been, 
and was just throwing an insane pace of crazy shit regardless of what was landing just from the beginning of the fight just fighting wherever the fight went and not actually disengaging and getting to her area of strength and then just ends up getting swept and fucked up from top and finished from a back mount yeah Marina Morose is going to win but she might get knocked out I think Morose has a, a very, I think it's a very good matchup from Rose, but there are some things that Agapova does that I think are going to cause issues, even in a winning fight. Like Agapova is very cons- consistent about throwing back, but she also likes to throw something away and then land a really big power shot. And Rose is, she bites on feints like all the time. She does not like getting hit, and she reacts to pretty much anything you throw at her. Normally, her reaction to someone throwing at her is to just stop throwing herself and then take a step back, maybe. So I think Agapova could get a lot of success if she just tries to blast her out in the beginning of a round. But I'm going to pick Marina Moroz by armbar in this first round. Yeah, Moroz is still... Um, like, like She can be scared out of exchanges enough that if Agapova just chases her back with stupid combinations, there could be something there. Um, but you're just picking a, re- a really consistent workman-like fighter against... A massive glass cannon. Um, and then next up, you got Umar Namagomedov versus Brian Kelleher. <clears throat> this is classic Brian Kelleher matchmaking. He, he'll fight people r- like way down at the bottom of the division for a couple fights, pick up some easy wins against people he's clearly way better than. And then he's straight back in there being the gatekeeper against the next guy that they want to get ranked. And this time, it's Umar Namagomedov. And... Um, I think Umar Namagomedov is probably going to submit Brian Kelleher. Brian Kelleher's just a, he's a pretty crafty fighter. He tends to be a bit too much of an opportunist and often will lose the fight until he wins randomly, but has shown like more consistent round-winning process in his striking and wrestling over his last few fights. Um, but Umar Namagomedov is just a really solid takedown artist and back control artist as well. Oh, you see in his fight with Sergei Morozov, who is clearly no slouch on the ground and had a lot of tricks for scrambling out of back control, it just wasn't enough. Umar had so many tricks for regaining the position and working towards a finish and is just a pretty fast, weird long-range kicker when he's on the feet. I think think Keller has a good way into the fight in, in that he's just looked very consistent lately and and been very measured over the course of three rounds. He's been doing good body work recently as well. Like it's always been in his game, but he's, he's really going to it and he's limiting his own volume as to not gas himself out as he's getting older. So I, I'm actually going to pick Brian Kelleher, even though it's, it's like a pretty rough matchup for him just because I'm going to believe in him to do the, the tricky old vet doing body shot type win. I'd love to see him pull it off. And he's he's like as experienced as you get at bantamweight, really. Or at this level, at least. He's had a lot of fights, and he's been in there with everyone. Yeah, and Umar's a very good fighter, but, you know, the, the best fighter he's fought isn't, is like Sergei Morozov, probably. And that's, he's not as good as Brian Kelher. So using that very basic math and also cope, I'm going to say Brian Kelher will win. All right, let's go, Brian Kelleher. And now, moving on, 
because we'll just do a few quick hits for the rest of this card. But um, can we find some cope for Tim Elliott against uh, Tagir Ulanbekov? Uh, basically, is being a tall dude who does straight punches and takedown defense enough to beat Tim Elliott in 2022? What do you think? I think Tim Elliott is going to grind him the fuck out. You cannot handle that Tim Elliott grind set. He once described Tim Elliott to me as like a little bit of Jim Miller mixed with a little bit of Clay Guida and then just a little bit of spice. Yeah, a little bit of spice. A little bit of lemon zest and some paprika. Yeah, he, he's, he has like some fun submissions. He's also more likely to get like shockingly quickly submitted than any of those guys are. But then Clay Guida? <laughs> Yeah, Clay Guida gets submitted, but you're you're like you can always tell for a few seconds before that he's about to get submitted. Like he'll drop to his knees and be like, "Oh, I got to reattack." You're like, "Oh, you're about to get submitted." Whereas Tim Elliott just kind of is in a submission all of a sudden. You're like, "Oh, okay, guess I guess he can go fuck himself." That that sucks for him. Shit. But then it'll also just like chill in guillotines with DJ for five rounds. <laughs> yeah, if if you have him in a guillotine for more than two seconds, it's not happening. Like you either get him done or you're you're staying in a guillotine for like four more minutes. Yeah, uh, Tagiri Lombekov, he is pretty fucking huge for this division. He's a lanky boy and he has a couple things and he's like pretty good at them. But Tim Elliott, he's, I mean, he's nowhere near as consistent as like Clay Guida. No, <laughs> he doesn't throw as much volume. Because, he, he's yeah, a lot he, more he, sneaky with things. And he really can be a victim of his own pace and just like decide that he's going to do a weird specific new thing in fights because that's just the vibe that he's on. So you really, it's really hard to trust Tim Elliott and pick his fights in any kind of consistent way. As his record would show. Yes. Um, I don't think Ulan Bekov wants to be on the ground with him and I think if Tim Elliott can get in, him there, he's got both... a. Uh, a bunch of incredibly weird, sneaky shit that he likes to do, um, but can also just like hold people down when he needs to do it. And um, mostly only pretty elite fighters beat Tim Elliott. Like you see the difference in like Tim Elliott as a gatekeeper fighting like Brandon Royville and uh, like Jordan Espinosa. Like one of those guys submitted Tim Elliott and is immediately like in the top five matchups in the division. And then those other guys just like get ground out and lose decisions. So I think that's going to happen. Let's go, Tim Elliott. He's getting on a bit and everything he does is a bit janky, but you, you, you got to love him. And he's a very smart fighter. He, he, he knows his way around a fight. He's, he's not going to take bad corner advice. He's not going to fight the wrong fight just because he, he feels like it needs to happen for him to try and salvage a victory. He'll go for the win the entire fight. I've seen him actively ignore James Krause telling him to be boring as fuck on, and stay on top and be like, dude, that's not how you win fights. I'm going to go hard in this round. It's, it's, it's another wily vet pick. Um, Ludovic Klein versus Devontae Smith. Monte Smith's taller than five foot nine. He's not going to get high kicked. Probably win. Yeah, I was I was actually looking up his height just to be like, okay, is he going to get head kicked? Okay, no, he's five nine. He's he's not going to get head kicked. All right, fine. Uh, and then Dustin Jacoby versus Michael Oleksajic. Kind of fucking sick. I don't really have any like reads on it, 
but it's like the perfect journeyman kickboxer matchup you, you could make in the heavier divisions. Yeah, it's a very fun matchup that if it was on the main card for a fight night, I would be happy to watch a bunch of tape for it. But since it's like so low on the card, we didn't watch much tape in particular for it. We more just have a, a passing familiarity with the two fighters. Oleg Chechuk is probably like one of the more skilled light heavyweights. He's just small and is a little silly in his demeanor when he approaches fights. And Dustin Jacoby is... A guy that gets touted as, you know, this great glory kickboxer. But he was he was like a mid-kickboxer. But he, he's pretty good in MMA. He has nice finishing sequences. He is aggressive. He doesn't stop throwing. He has a decent shin. I think it's going to be a banger. But I th- also think it's going to end within the first half of the fight. Yeah, I mean, Dustin Jacoby was a pretty mid-kickboxer. But, like, fighting guys like Simon Marcus is still just, like, really valuable experience. Yeah, and he's, he's definitely a good MMA striker. Definitely. He's kind of like light heavyweight Tim Means. I don't know how I feel about that, but I fuck with this matchup. Yeah, Michael Oleksajic, he's just the guy who wants to outwork people, put on a big pace and hit the body. His problem is usually getting taken down and getting submitted because he's tiny. And, like, I mean, that, that OSP fight where he was just, just blasting OSP with body shots up against the cage, was on the verge of finishing him at almost every moment. And, I mean, you can just see the Von Flu choke coming like three minutes before it happens. And then, yeah, Dustin Jacoby, just a a consistent workman-like jabby low-kicky dude with like okay footwork and positioning. This is is a fun matchup. Again, <clears throat> like you said, if it hadn't been right at the bottom of a card with a whole bunch of stuff on it, this this would have been one I actually would have enjoyed doing tape for. Did you have a pick? Uh, I'm going to say Dustin Jacoby by being longer. I'm going to say Oleg Sajic by body shots in the second round. Okay. For the round pick, I'm going to say second round for, for Jacoby. Okay, so that's everything that we wanted to talk about from this card. Um, if you want a more detailed breakdown of all of the fights on the card, Dan and Fania are going to be hitting that on the Fight Side Podcast Network. So make sure to check that out. As always, if you enjoy like all of the content that the Fight Site puts out, consider supporting us on Patreon, where we have a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content, and a great Discord server with, with a cool community for lots of interesting people. This has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. You can catch us in a few days where we're going to be recapping whatever goes down on this coming card. And then at some point next week, I guess we're going to be hitting a preview for UFC Santos versus Ankalaev. So look forward to that. But yeah, we'll catch you later. Peace. Bye.